good afternoon, everybody. You're welcome back after lunch. Um, in this next session, the first of our speakers is Dr. Chantal Cobell. She holds a Bergen Fellowship in the Dublin Institute of Advanced Studies, School of Celtic Studies, and she's working mainly at the moment with medieval Irish legal manuscripts in Trinity College, Dublin. Her talk now is on elements of readability in the Lower Brack, so I'll hand over to Chantal. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Bernie. Can you hear me in the back? Yeah, it's okay. Um, should have a handout. Uh, also, this is after lunch, so this is a good time for a snooze. Uh, a lot of what I'm saying is actually repeating what everyone else has been saying. So, uh, uh, and I didn't have time to rewrite my talk. <laughs> okay, so the Lerabrach is one of a handful of Irish manuscripts that survived from the end of the late 14th and early 15th century. It is a large compendium of mostly, but not entirely, religious texts, apocryphal, hagiographical, homiletic, and devotional, many of which are bilingual. The manuscript is one of the largest vellum formats to survive, consisting of some 244 vellum leaves measuring 38 by 25 centimeters, with some smaller leaves inserted. In contrast to the other near contemporary manuscripts, such as the Book of Ballymote, which was a collaborative affair between at least three scribes working in concert, the Lerabrach is the work of one scribe and the largest body of work attributable to a single scribe from this period, whose handwriting was described by Eugene O'Curry in his unpublished Academy catalogue as one of the very best and most beautiful. Now we've heard already throughout the conference uh, about the contents and the history of the manuscript and in this paper, I focus on the layout and aspects of scribal practices in the manuscript, elements of which contribute to the readability of text, a term coined by Bergeron and Ornato. The mise en page, so the design of the page, and mise en text, which here for the purpose of this talk, I understand in the broad sense to include headings, numbering systems, annotation symbols, and construe marks, um, all of these provide transparency to the hierarchical structure of a text. I might add here that mise-en-text also includes punctuation, abbreviation, abbreviation usage, and word division, but this would require a whole other, uh, probably day's talk, uh, solely on not only the punctuation of the lower back, but uh, punctuation in Irish, the Irish manuscript tradition as a whole. The execution of these aspects contributes to the readability of texts with the greatest efficiency and least effort on the part of the reader, or not, depending on the skill of the scribe. Moreover, they manipulate the medieval user's reading experience and form part of what Malcolm Parks terms, and I quote, the grammar of legibility. That's number one in your handout. I've given you uh, his quote. Parks' statement describes the relationship between the scribe and the reader, a relationship in which the scribe anticipates the reader's needs in understanding the text and presenting the text in a particular manner that will help the reader to do so. Before coming to these aspects, let's look back on how uh, what we know about the manuscript. Uh, the Lara Brack was catalogued by Kathleen Mulcrone, as we've heard, in 1943 in which she provides a summary description of the physical aspects of the book and its contents, together with a list of most, but not all, scribal notes and the first lines of the marginal quatrains. 
She discussed the script, remarking on the different size employed at times, but did not identify the scribe. This was Tommaso Conchianum, who further added to our understanding of the manuscript in his seminal article published in Eru in 1973, in which he established that the scribe of the Lower Brack was Murphys O'Quinlish, a student of Gula Isa Makirvishig. Other manuscripts written by Murphys include a section now bound into the composite uh, TCD manuscript 1318, the so-called Yellow Book of Lecan, a portion which he wrote between 1398 and 1399. And he also collaborated with Gila Isamak in the Book of Lecan, and he also copied the now lost Lerer Rua Muinuk. His signature in two scribal notes uh, in the so-called Yellow Book of Lecan provide good diagnostic samples for his script, which uh, from which we can uh, identify the main characteristic features of his hand, outlined already by O'Con Cannon. These consist of bent stems on descenders of F, P, and S, the rather long head and small closed bowl of the letter G, the letter A ascending above the line, the heavy serifs on the letters I, M, N, P, R, S, and U, which touch the preceding letter, as well as um, prominent serfs on ascenders of the letters B, H, and L. Moreover, Morphus also employs a flourished paragraph symbol along with a planar type in the three manuscripts. In the Lower Brack, Morphus uses this flourished symbol along with a planar paragraph symbol solely in the copy of Phaler Oingasa to mark particular sections in the scolia, which we have heard uh, this particular choir, uh, two choirs he wrote in 1408. The only apparent contemporary intervention, as pointed out by uh, O'Con Cannon, by another hand, occurs in a passage in The Passion of St. George, and I'll be coming back to this again later on. Here there is a notable change in the form and use of different letter shapes in, compar in comparison to the characteristics uh, identified of Morch's hands. For instance, the consistently different form of the G, a shorter and more rounded US compendium, the descender of the S slanting to the left. The Et compendium has a short upward flick at the end of the horizontal stroke. This scribe tends to extend the pronounced upper stroke of the S higher above the following letter, and this hand also tends to write EA uh, for E before a non-palatalized consonant in this portion of the text, in contrast to the rest of the text where Murchid does not use this spelling. So an unusual feature of Murchid's handwriting is his tendency to change script size, by which I mean the size of the minuscule script rather than the use of display script and minuscule script used to differentiate canonical text from gloss and commentary. Kathleen Murchone noted that the hand on page 254, and I quote her here, changes in size every few lines as if the work were done at different times. Column A, line 41, seems to be a different hand. Allowance must, however, be made for the facility with which the penman can turn from large to small script, but she doesn't elaborate this, end quote. Examining this script, we find the similarity in the letter G, tall E, the R compendium, the US compendium, all of which are in Murcha's hand. 
Um, this change also occurs in the other column on page 254, again having the same characteristic features of Morkin Pond. O'Conkannon also observed, and I quote, a variation in the size of the script with different columns and even within columns, end quote, pointing out uh, the small style of the scribal hand on page 69. Here the scribe writes eight lines in a smaller minuscule than the rest of the text on the page and its ductus is noticeably different. I will be showing you these uh, towards the end um, of the talk to when I get to my point. Um, however, the similarity in certain letter shapes, such as the letter G, the P with a an unclosed bowl, and the shape of the Ed compendium confirm again this is Morkin Pond. Is it possible that Morkin deliberately emphasized this particular passage and elsewhere where he changed his script size um, yeah, by means of using a different script size, question mark. I shall return to this point again. But first, let's look at the book overall and its structure. Um, so we heard from Bernie before lunch already. The manuscript has undergone several modern rebindings and bears several pagination systems from the modern period. The earliest evidence um, for binding or rebinding uh, was a stamp with George Mullen, Dublin, 80, 1831, and it was rebound then twice um, thereafter, once of which was by the instructions of Eugene O'Curry. In 1973, Roger Powell replaced the 19th century binding and repaired the manuscript. And information from his conservation notes um, provide the collation formula in number two in your handout, uh, from which I drew from Podrigal Machoin's article in the Book of Final Note which he provided there. And it shows that the Lerabrac consists mostly of gatherings of 10 uh, rather than um, eight gatherings, uh, uh, gatherings of eight, which is the preferred gathering in the Book of Ivania. There are chasms in the manuscript, as Nolik has pointed out. And this loss suggests the manuscript was kept unbound with loose gatherings, perhaps forming booklets, as was the practice um, with manuscripts of that period. On this note, we might also observe that there are no choir signatures or catchwords in the manuscript. However, the textual continuity across certain choirs, and here I use um, Tom Terhorst's reconstruction and naming of the choirs, such as from across choir B, across to C, and across to D, so that's one uh, unit, E across to F, which is Mika's failure, and M across to N. Um, supporting at least the sequence of these gatherings, but what the overall order, original order of the manuscript was, remains unclear pending further codicological examination. The leaves are generally in good condition, however, they often bear witness to the preparation process, with striation marks visible from the knife, as well as slashes in the parchment when scraping off the flesh, um, some of which have been mended and drawn around in red, such as here on page 179. Holes from defects in the skin prior to the preparation are often decorated also. In some instances, the leaves were prepared so well that they're thin and the ink bleeds through. Um, you can just about make it out there. The discrepancy in pricking patterns throughout the gathering suggests they were prepared individually as the need arose. And I think this goes back to your comment about the um, amount of material that was required. 
The manuscript was ruled by dry point and often um, the scribe uses these as a mere guide, writing the line of text over the ruled line rather than on top of it, perhaps showing uh, confidence in his ability. He didn't need this um, uh, uh, as a guide. The shifting of pricking marks in some gatherings points to them being pricked after they were folded and the pricking marks for bending lines were made either with an awl or a knife, and this differ differs across gatherings. And bending lines are often ignored also, with words spilling into the margin rather than being split across line boundaries, um, although he does do that as well, often leaving the text block um, with an unjustified format. Incidentally, Morhud does not use hyphenation when words are split across line boundaries, despite this practice already in use in pre-Norman manuscripts, such as the Book of Leinster. The layout in the manuscript displays a continuity with the design of the page from pre-Norman exemplars, which are generally written in two columns for prose and prosometric texts. The two-column layout likely aided the readability of the text through the shortening of lines rather than having a long line across the page. In most cases, Morchud starts a new text at the top of a column, at the beginning of a choir, perhaps. Uh, this sometimes leaves him with the problem of a half-empty column preceding it, which he often fills with filler poems, uh, demonstrating a concern for the economy of space, such as the inclusion of the short poem on page 108 about a wren by Duncan Moore-Uedolig. The texts are beautifully laid out throughout the lower brack, and the overall structure is often indicated for the reader, with the text typically beginning with an elaborate uh, initial letter. letter, letter, letter. Um, there are nine large zoomorphic knotted wire initials and seven non-zoomorphic knotted wire initials, some of which have a mosaic pattern, as you can see on the slide. Apart from these, the texts often begin with litera mid litera notabiliores, extending across five lines and are distinguished by heavy black ink. Subdivisions, uh, new paragraphs and syllabic poetry begin with a smaller type of enlarged letter, which often alternate in colour from red, blue and yellow. Thus we find Merkud intentionally employing a clear hierarchical structure in which the various size of letters were used. Insipids and subsection headings, placed often in rubricated boxes, provide, provide further structure to the layout and call attention to the specific parts of the text. Syllabic quatrains and prosimetric texts are also generally written in prose format. Morkud uses the marginal abbreviation or with two dots beside it, standing for wrong, often placing it in a rubricated box to highlight the presence of the quatrain for the reader who can then quickly access it, if so desired. Elsewhere throughout the manuscript, poetry is laid out in the usual manner where each quatrain begins with the litera notabiliora, and in one instance even that I've come across in Shigela Alexander, Morkud places a series of alliterative prose sentences an imitation of the poetry layout, whereas elsewhere in Shigela Alexander, alliterative sentences are placed in the same layout as the prose. 
There are, of course, exceptions to the bicolumnar layout, depending on the nature of the text or the dimension of the leaf. For instance, the genealogical material is written across four columns, as well as the litanies on page 74. I think somebody has an image up of that already. Um, and these, uh, this layout accommodates the short entries and sentences. On other pages, bicolumnar layout is further subdivided to accommodate lists of names. Such lists allow the reader to scan down through the names and use the alternating colours, possibly um, having, a function, uh, ha having a functional as well as a decorative purpose, ensuring the reader's eye does not skip any lines. And a good example of this is seen on page 147, where both column A and B are further subdivided into two columns each to accommodate the inclusion of the names. Special layouts were used for certain texts that had accompanying apparatus, glossing and commentary, such as the Thaler Langesa, um, the Altus Prasadr, the Abba Kvidarian poem Edita Omnes Amantes, and Avra Shemelon. In this group of texts, a large display script is used for the canonical text, with gloss and commentary written in a small minuscule, reflecting the traditional practice of the hierarchy of script. Interestingly, Murchid conservatively follows the traditional layout of Thalera Oingasa, as prescribed by the poem's author several centuries earlier, Liam Brannock has pointed out to me. In the epilogue of the poem, um, the author explains the structure of the text, explaining that the number of quatrains will equal the amount of days in the year. And in each quatrain, and then that each quatrain will declare the feast of the day. And he continues, and this is number three in your handout in the title of the talk, knowns and ides, a series of calms with truth, on thy margin with whiteness they shall be in their line. Thus Morchid places the calends, knowns and ides, ides of the Roman calendar in the margin, usually placed in a coloured box, with each quatrain occupying two lines of the main text block. Moreover, the wide margins accommodate the inclusion of extensive commentary, which Nika has uh, so excellently displayed for us this morning. Um, and it displays a continuity with the functional mise en page employed in Psalter books, um, such as in the 211th century manuscripts of the Liver and Norm. Marcus visually marks out the commentary, placing it in boxes uh, and using construe symbols, such as the trigon or alphabetical tie marks to guide the reader to the correct arrangement of text and commentary. And he does this not only in the Phaedra, also in uh, these other types of texts, such as here on page 238b in the copy of the poem Idita Omnes Amantes. The copying of such texts would require great skill and consideration of the layout, paying attention to detail and requiring the use of two pens, also taking into consideration the exemplars he would have had in front of him and that he would have had to pay attention to to copy correctly the material. This page format undoubtedly affected the speed at which Murchid worked. Rather than a day per page as per the norm for a bicolumnar page, Murchid notes that he copied Avra Shemain, which occupies one column in a single day. 
So Liam Brannock, um, going back to this morning's lecture and uh, the comment on um, marginalia, uh, in a recent statutory lecture has shown or drawn attention to the fact that the memorization of marginal quatrains formed part of the medieval Irish educational curriculum and that they were part of the deliberate design of the page. Occupying the blank spaces of the margins throughout the manuscript, Murkhud included numerous quatrains and scribal notes, often placing them in rubricated boxes. And they were also afforded or provided um, the same punctuation as the poetry written in the main text block. These marginal quatrains were afforded due consideration in the design of the page, just as much as the main text, and were intended to be part of the reading programme of the manuscript. These quatrains are also sometimes closely interconnected to the main text on the page, I think. Um, for instance, uh, the marginal quatrain on um, the death of Christ is placed in the upper margin of page 162 and complements the theme of the main text, namely the Passion of Christ. And in the lower margin, the quatrain lists the name of four guards who stood guard at Jesus' grave, whose names are then mentioned again in the text of the resurrection of Christ, which follows immediately the Passion some two further leaves down. So I think we might be able to surmise that Merkhud may have included such materials and um, perhaps building anticipation for what is to come further on in the text or another text further on in the, in the booklet or book. Merkhud's marginal scribal notes are also instructive and show close engagement with the text. For example, the marginal note at the end of the Thalera on page 105 this is number four in your handout, notes that 365 in the body of the martyrology itself and six and 11 score, so 226 in the two prologues, so that all that is 11 and four score and 500. There's your maths. Uh, 591 quatrains in total between prologue, epilogue and the main text of the martyrology. Therefore, it provides the reader with a checklist as to the correct amount of quatrains contained in the text. Murkhus also provides further paratextual information in the form of Roman numerals in the margins to the prologue. Uh, I've probably gone. Yeah, sorry. Uh, beginning with the 20th quatrain, oh, sorry, he provides numerals in the margins marking every 20th quatrain in the epilogue and the prologue, or the prologue and the epilogue. Thus in the prologue, beginning with the 20th quatrain on page 76A, he skips the 40th on page 77, but highlights the initials with yellow, uh, noting the wretched world we're in, we are in. Uh, the 60th quatrain is marked with another Roman numeral 20, and so with the last quatrain marked in the um, prologue as the 85th. The use of ro marginal Roman numerals is not isolated solely to the copy of the Thalera, but part of a broader paratextual apparatus throughout the Larobrac. In The Passion of George, Murkhud inserts Roman numerals in the margins, highlighting the passages which, which refer to George's death and resurrection. So the Roman numeral 1 appears in the margin on page 191, marking the end of the episode of George's first death where he has been flung onto a wheel with sharp spikes and double-edged swords in the centre and his relics reincarnated by God. 
The numeral two in the outer margin of page 191 is placed alongside George's resurrection following his second death. There's a change of scribe on page 192b, which I highlighted earlier, where the third death occurs, and it seems that this scribe did not include the reader's aid in the margin. Uh, it's being added actually by a later hand, and um, there's a change in ink. And finally, on page 193, the numeral four appears in the outer margin beside the fourth death. Roman numerals are also used in the margins enumerating lists of names, such as in the passage in Slaughter of the Infants, which gives an account of the flight to and sojourn in Egypt. Um, here we find a series of Roman numerals beside a list of names of the party who fled with Joseph and Mary from Nazareth to Egypt from Herod. The numerals correlate to the names of jo Jesus, Mary, Rebecca, Rachel, and Sapsana, Sephora, Elizabeth, Maladetus, that is Joseph, James, Semyon, and Abion, the three sons of Joseph, and one Gila, the donkey, sadly, does not receive a numeral. Marcus also uses numerals beside prose passages, which describe various items or lists, such as in the passage of the homily on fasting and abstinence, where the eight types of fasting are described. So Merkud used Roman numerals as paratextual visual clues to guide the reader throughout the texts, ensuring a more convenient reading practice, and more crucially, that information was not missed or skipped over. As well as the use of Roman numerals, Merkud draws on a variety of marginal annotation symbols to draw attention to various parts within a text. We've already mentioned the symbol or, um, which appears already in pre-Norman Irish language manuscripts, such as in the Book of Leinster, copy of Tuin Bocunia, um, as recently shown in a study by Christine O'Cleary. Other symbols also have a long history in the Irish vellum tradition, deriving from the earlier Latin tradition, such as the Nota Bene symbol, abbreviated as M, and written in the margins, drawing attention to significant details within the text. The nota symbol appears scattered throughout the manuscript and frequently placed in rubricated boxes in the margins. Um, and I've found actually one instance where Merchid uses the abbreviation F in a rubricated box, um, so Fech, uh, look, drawing attention to the age of John the Baptist, or sorry, drawing attention to John the Baptist's age of 30. Did that resonate with Merchid because he too was 30? We can only guess. Um, the nota symbol is on occasion presented alongside a cross also, a symbol which is found in manuscripts as well from the pre-Norman period, such as in Rawlinson B502, where, as Padraig O'Neill observes, the scribe uses it to call attention to sections of a poem on the Psalter. In the lower brack, on page 158, Morakud places it in the margin beside the passage where Judas died by his own hand following the betrayal of Jesus, his betrayal of Jesus. An upright cross also appears on page 162b, marking the passage where uh, in Luke um, chapter 23, verse 46, notes the last words spoken by Jesus uh, on the cross. The theme of death continues with a large cross placed between column A and B, denoting the death of Philip in Shkela Alexander MacPhilip. 
This symbol also appears in the commentary to Fedor Angusa, where it is placed beside a charm termed Ayla on page 99. This is a charm for healing, and Jacqueline Borges has observed that the element is described in negative formulations, namely states, let it not be a blemish, let it not be a hole, a gore, a swelling, or a sore. All of these things, if left unhealed, could of course lead to death, and is perhaps suggest, uh, attempting to suggest this is why Morchid chose to place this particular symbol rather than a paragraph mark, for example, beside it rather than anything else. Returning to Shkela Alexander, Morchid uses uh, this unusual symbol, not visible there, uh, along with the Roman numerals one and two, marking two passages of dialogue between Alexander and Dindamus. It resembles an initial letter suspension, so a D with a cross stroke passing obliquely through the body, used for various parts of the verb, the Latin verb to say. And it occurs in early Latin manuscripts pre-850, according to William uh, Wallace Lindsay, and only very rarely in manuscripts between 850 to 1050, according to Doris Baines. This symbol is not noted by Kuno Meyer in his edition of the text, nor have I come across an example of the symbol elsewhere in the Irish manuscript tradition yet. Um, so I'd be happy if anybody had any um, references to that. In early medieval Latin manuscripts, a variety of conventions evolved to mark a direct citation from another author. In the earlier period, citations could be indicated by the layout, such as indentation or projecting into the margin, the use of rubrication, the use of different script size, or both. This practice of indentation and projecting into the margins fell out of use by the seventh century, according to um, Steinova, most likely because this method required the effort of design and was replaced by the more transparent method of using marginal annotation signs, the earliest form being the dipple, derived from Greek manuscripts and which has been described as an arrowhead. This symbol was adopted by Latin scholars and Isidore of Seville in his account of the ancient notae and accompanied by representations of the signs in the margins of uh, manuscript copies of this, described it as a symbol used by scribes, and I quote, in books by writers of the church to separate or indicate the testimony of holy scripture, end quote. The use of rubrication and the writing of scriptural citations in smaller or different script, both uncial and minuscule, became popular in the 8th century in the Anglo-Saxon environment, and later among those who used Caroline minuscule in the 9th century on. However, the more common method was using graphic variations of the marginal citation sign, including the dipple, an S-shaped flourish, and the insular sign. This insular sign, in use from the 8th century, consisted of one, two, or three dots and a comma placed in the margin. Such symbols were entered in the margins huh, so that readers were alerted to the presence of citations. And sometimes these marks extended over a number of lines so that the reader could tell from a glance how, the citation, how long the citation was. 
From the 12th century on, these citation signs were brought into the main text, ultimately giving us our modern day quotation marks. The practice of marking citations from the Bible in the wider Irish vellum tradition in the post-Norman era is an aspect of scribal practice that requires further attention. Two instances that I've come across so far use two different methods. In King's Inn's Manuscript 10, we find the use of rubrication and display script to signify citations in the copy of Genevan Christ. In the Book of Lecan, Yoli Isa Makirvishig uses the S-shaped flourish citation symbol, among other signs, um, to mark out the names of the Algerian kings. The Larabrac provides an interesting case whereby Morkud uses several methods to bring attention to scriptural citations. So for instance, Morkud employs the dot and comma spanning the length of the citation here on page 142 in the outer margin beginning with the introduction and followed by the quotation which is from Isaiah chapter 19 verse 1. On page 150, marking a citation from Luke chapter 2, verse 4, as well as page 173 in the Passion of Peter and Paul, where citation symbols mark a citation from St. Paul's second epistle to Timothy 4, um, verse 7. These instances of biblical quotation marking suggest they were inserted in the manuscript during the copying process or shortly thereafter rather than in the process of reading by a later hand. On page 228, in a passage on the finding of the cross, Morchid inserts the citation mark into the main column to draw attention to the Queen's announcement, Queen Helen's announcement, which he begins to write following that citation symbol. However, he may have been momentarily distracted perhaps lifting his eyes when re-inking his pen, and repeats the entire sentence again. Here the scribe begins writing, but uh, yeah, through um, his error, he uses two arrow-headed symbols to mark the error, reminiscent of the earlier dipple, not as a mark of citation, but as a symbol of deletion. This brings me back to the use of Morkud's different uh, size of minuscule script, which I mentioned earlier. On page 69, in the homily of almsgiving, Morchud employs a smaller script for a passage from the New Testament, which is a citation from John chapter 3, verse 17, written both in Latin and Irish. And I give here Roisin McLaughlin's translation. Whoever, said the apostle, has the wealth of this world if he sees his brother in poverty and in need, if he does not pity him, clearly he does not actually possess God's love. Another distinctive example of this change in script size is seen here with the copy of the Paternoster in the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 to 13. The Lerabrach therefore stands out amongst its near contemporary manuscripts for Merkut's scribal practice of marking scriptural citations in which he uses citation symbols or a change in minuscule script size to mark them out to the reader. 
Since not every quotation from scripture is marked, they may serve merely as an occasional guide to the reader. However, I do intend to do a, a more comprehensive study in the printed version of what um, text Mark has actually marked of significance, uh, marked of significance, including the nota symbols, uh, to see whether there is a thematic coherency which underlies them. So to conclude, Murkud's skill and expertise as a scribe is clearly visible through his clear and concise handwriting in the layout and design of the manuscript. He follows the traditional modalities of layout and design in the Irish vellum tradition, emulating the manuscripts from the pre-Norman period. While we might consider features of mise-en-page and mise-en-text as mundane today, they provided a valuable function for the medieval reader and the grammar of legibility would have been at the forefront of scribe's mind when compiling a manuscript. Murkut's planned and deliberate programme of layout, design, script and paratextual elements, which is actually even more striking when you think he's written it over a number of years, um, was designed with due consideration given to the medieval reader, providing a book that was easy to read, to navigate and to gain quick access to material of interest. Thank you.